Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Michael Suarez. I'm the director of Rare Book School, and it's my great pleasure to uh, welcome you to the fourth of our summer lectures. You're in for a treat tonight. Matthew Edney is one of the great experts in America, if not the world, on maps, their materiality, their interfaces with digital affordances, and the pedagogical possibilities that they contain. Professor Edney studied geography at University College London, earning his BSc in 1983, and at the University of Wisconsin, getting his PhD in 1990. After teaching at the State University of New York at Binghamton, he moved in 1995 to the University of Southern Maine. It's hard to imagine moving from worst, from Binghamton and encountering worse weather, but somehow <laughs> Professor Edney has, has found a way to do that. He moved to the University of Southern Maine where he has sent, since 2007 held the highly prestigious Osher Chair in the history of cartography. Now here's the real deal. Since 2005, Professor Edney has also directed the History of Cartography Project. Five volumes, many of them bound in two volumes. This is volume three. <laughs> this is volume three. This is my copy, not yours. This is my copy of volume three. I took it out of my office this afternoon, okay? This is volume three of five, okay? Professor Edney took this project on in 2005, and with luck, he expects, all being well, expects to be finished by 2023. This is a great example of intellectual and moral courage, it seems to me. In a world of intellectual and academic short-termism, Professor Edney has taken on a project that requires the long durée, that requires a degree of application and organizational management and financial management that I think is sadly lacking in the academy. And I, I will say, um, I'm not going to enjoin you to go do likewise, but I, I will say I'm filled with admiration at his courage and his steadfastness. Um, he's edited with Mary Pedley, Cartography in the European Enlightenment, and uh, his work embraces the history of surveying, British imperial mapping, uh, enlightenment mapping and historiography. Uh, before he comes up, I cannot forbear to uh, suggest to you that you go to his personal website, which is whoop, 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 whatever that could possibly stand for, <laughs> mappingasprocess.net. Uh, mappingasprocess.net. Entries for March included a wonderful piece on a Mezzotint star map and um, a really a piece that took, must have taken years to write called First Steps Toward a Partial Genealogy of the Compass Rose. He is far and wide ranging in his cartographical interests. Um, I myself have been up to the uh, University of Southern Maine to visit Professor Edney and to see his operation there and um, it is a joy to behold, and it is my honor and deep pleasure to introduce him to you now. So far be it from me to correct such a generous and wonderful introduction, but there are actually six volumes in the history of cartography, not five. Sorry. <laughs> So, I am live. Can we have the lights down, I think, please? Um, so, first of all, thank you very much for the invitation, Michael. And thank you, Jeremy, for your help in organizing logistics and stuff. 
Um, I'm going to read this mostly because if I don't, I'm going to go off on tangents because to me this is really cool and interesting and uh, talking about it. Um, bit of puffery to start off with. Uh, these are the published volumes of the history of cartography. Um, I should say this whole project began in 1977 and the original plan by the founding editors, Harley and Woodward, was to have everything done by 1992. Uh, then they added more volumes and then volumes grew and volume four will be out late next year, probably October 19, if the press keeps the schedule. And volume five in the 19th century should come out some point in 2023, and then I can have my life back. <laughs> One of my key achievements, um, have, I've managed to persuade the University of Chicago Press to put all the volumes online for free public access, uh, both retrospectively for the older ones, but also within three years of print publication for the, for the remaining three volumes. So volume six went online about three weeks ago. Uh, all million words, thousand images, and all the rest of it. And my other life is at the Ocean Map Library uh, in Maine, come with pictures, and we are in the process of completely redoing our website, uh, which in addition to having all sorts of imagery, we try to have a lot of content on there as well about the maps. Anyway. So my goal this afternoon is to reconsider the issue of materiality and the significance for understanding maps and mapping. Some of you might find my comments to be rather old hat, as they rest significantly on the arguments of historians of the book and historians of culture more generally. However, I have repeatedly seen scholars who are critically minded in one arena who nonetheless surrender all their critical faculties to the apparently common sense notions of maps and cartography that permeate modern culture. The problem is that modern, modern culture features the deeply rooted idealizations that there exists a singular and universal endeavor of cartography that produces a coherent and unambiguous category of things called maps. This ideal of cartography comprises a complex web of preconceptions that cohered over the course of the 19th century. Many scholars from across the humanities and the social sciences have, since about 1980, challenged some of those preconceptions and have argued that maps are cultural documents used for social functions, made for social functions. Even so, the social cultural critique has focused on theorizing the map, and critics have not actually targeted the ideal of cartography as a whole. The result is that the ideal's preconceptions have persisted in the academic as well as in the popular mind, not least among them, the conviction that there actually exists a category of phenomena that we can unambiguously define as the map. Frankly, it is all a game of intellectual whack-a-mole. No sooner does one preconception you hit it on the head than another one rises up to take its place. Thank you, Internet. <laughs> My goal today, therefore, is to analyse and dispel the particular mole of materiality. I first consider how the ideal of cartography has promoted improper conceptions of the nature of maps as things, and then to use two case studies uh, concerning the early regional mapping of New England to reconsider this matter of materiality. As one more piece of puffery, I should note that this topic is one small part of a forthcoming book, Cartography, the Ideal in its History, which is scheduled to appear early in 2019. I don't have the cover design yet, but my editor tells me that the designers really liked this image. The book outlines the flaws of the ideal's many preconceptions and explains how the ideal cohered over the last two centuries. The epigraph to chapter one says it all. There is no such thing as cartography, and this is a book about it. <laughs> Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. It was a commonplace of early modern culture that regional maps mirrored the earth and that readers could use them to observe distant lands without hazarding the rigours of travel. 
But after about 1800, commentators increasingly accepted that all maps, even maps of the entire Earth, are actually produced by direct observation, especially from an elevated vantage point. Just recently, a dealer introduced me to a wonderful manifestation of this new conviction, one that was made perhaps as early as 1820, based on the watermarks. A British school child drew the planets as seen through a telescope, which included, as figure three, the Earth. How can that be? The other planets are all drawn as seen, such as the Sun, apparently suffering from the mumps, Saturn, and Jupiter with their moons. But the Earth appears as a map, complete with lines of latitude, longitude, and the ecliptic that are actually invisible. Here, and in the rest of modernity, the abstracted nature of geographical maps is casually conflated with acts of observation. Even regional world maps cease to be understood as creations of human intellect and were naturalized as direct visual records of the world. All maps become, in the common naive formula, pictures of the world. The ideal presupposes that maps are necessarily physical, material things that are made to hold cartographic images. It promotes a conceptual divorce between the map image and the map between content and form, between noumenon and phenomenon. This distinction, no matter how illogical, no matter how disproven, for example, by historians of the book in the repudiation of the ideal copy, it still has several implications that persist in distort scholarly interpretations of maps and mapping. The crux of cartography, this idealization, is the algorithm for preparing map content, the observation and measurement of the Earth, and then the recreation of the Earth on paper at a reduced scale. The content and meaning of the map image is defined almost entirely by the part of the world it represents. It reproduces. The map image refers only to the world. For the reader, it is a means of accessing the world. The map image is self-contained and bounded by set physical limits. The edge of the map, the image ends at the edge of the map, of the map thing. From this idealized perspective, maps are decidedly not intertextual. In this respect, the issue of maps materiality is relevant only to the study of map projection and to the particular question of how map form might affect the look of the map and the presentation of the content. Otherwise, the idea plays no attention to the material nature of the map. The material existence of maps is taken for granted. The map thus stands as a physical, stable thing. For Bruno Latour, maps were the stereotypical immutable mobiles, the inscribed record of observations that can be carried from the field to the centre of calculation without being changed, an act that for Latour stands at the very heart of modern Western science. The map also proclaims a temporal fixity, Commentators routinely note that maps are out of date as soon as they are made. The moment of the map's completion clearly distinguishes the epoch of the making of the map from the epoch of the using of the map. The materiality and apparently self-containedness of maps creates a physical barrier between the two sets of individuals involved in mapping, the map maker and the map user. The study of cartography in its history has accordingly focused almost entirely on the technologies and techniques by which the map image is algorithmically structured, with some attention to the physical construction of the map and on the assessment of the quality of the results. By contrast, sociocultural critics have directed a great deal of scholarly attention to issues of map use, or at least to the wider social situations in which maps have been used. They have also shed light on the existence of immaterial maps that feature oral and gestural semiotic strategies. Yet these new perspectives have had little impact on how scholars have sought to reinterpret material maps. In particular, 
Maps materiality still appears to interrupt and break up mapping practices. In 1999, for example, the late prominent cultural geographer Dennis Cosgrove, having reviewed the field of map history and its traditional concerns, proposed two new sets of questions that should bear heavily on any history of mapping. The first is the complex accretion of cultural engagements with the world that surround and underpin the authoring of a map, that is, treating the map as a determined cultural outcome. The second is the insertion of the map, once produced, into various circuits of use, exchange, and meaning, that is, the map as an element of material culture. Cosgrove therefore outlined two sets of practice, one to reduce the map, and the other once the map has been made and has materialistic existence to go in its use. In doing so, he continued to bifurcate the entire process of mapping at the map, around which, quote, around which pivots whole systems of knowledge, of, of meaning, both prior and subsequent to his technical mechanical production. All told, a series of convictions is sustained by the ideal of cartographers' preconception of materiality that persists despite the best efforts of sociocultural critics. Maps are things, but who cares what kind? Maps are standalone, self-contained documents. Maps sharply divide mapping into two processes, map-making and map-using. Maps are stable and immutable. Maps possess chronological fixity, being made at a specific moment. And here we might equally replace maps in this list with books. All of these convictions are in need of rejection, revision, or at very least substantial qualification. Let's begin to do so by considering the story of the first map printed in North America, specifically William Hubbard's Map of New England from 1677. This is a famous map, long held as an emblem of the transfer of European civilization and technology to the wilds of the American frontier. In case you're having difficulty, north is at the right of the map, Cape Cod is down here. It also indicates the kind of detailed physical analysis that the ideal of cartography has allowed. The issue is that there exists a variant map, also cut in wood, at the same size and so on, but with several differences from the first, including several erroneous toponyms. The most obvious difference, the names of mountains in northern New England, gave rise to their common labels, the White Hills map and the Wine Hills map. I can assure you there are no grapes growing on top of Mount Washington. The maps have been produced, were both produced as part of William Hubbard's History of King Philip's War known as the narrative of the troubles with the Indians in the Boston imprint, and as the present state of New England in the London imprint. The problem is that antiquarian dealers in the 19th century had so mixed and matched books and maps, taking them from one to the other, rebinding them, removing them, that all bibliographic certainty was lost. No one knew for certain which variant map went with which variant book. A small debate developed in the later 19th century trying to identify which of these two variants was to be lauded as the map first produced, first printed, published in the colonies. In 1939, Randolph Adams published a detailed bibliography, bibliographic analysis of as many impressions of the two books and original bindings that he could find. Despite the small sample size, he concluded that the White Hills map was part of the Boston imprint. But his careful empirical analysis flew in the face of the common sense understanding that correct maps must replace incorrect ones. This is a conviction that stems from other preconceptions of cartography's innately progressive nature. Richard Holman and Princeton, in 1960, constructed without evidence a contorted sequence of events to explain how John Foster had first cut the block of the Winehills map to be shipped to London with all of his errors, and then he cut the corrected White Hills map for printing in Boston. So for him, the White Hills map is the first map cut in the colonies, but the White Hills map is the first one printed when he's published. 
makes no sense. Anyway, eventually, David Woodward in 1967 uh, solved the issue by relying on the fact that the lettering in the title block of both variants was printed from foundry type set into the woodblock. By comparing the type in each map to that in each book, Woodward verified Adam's findings. And he further explained the simple mechanics of how the Wine Hills map's errors had been created when the London woodcutter had copied the White Hills map a bit carelessly. There is, however, much more to the materiality of the White Hills, White Hills and Wine Hill maps than how they were made. In the very few remaining copies of the Boston edition of the book in original binding, I think there are now two, um, John cut around, conserved theirs, and took the map out. Anyway, um, in the copies of the Boston edition, the White Hills map was tipped into the middle of the volume, and you can note just the, the depth of the volume preceding it. Here, at the end of Hubbard's main narrative, the map introduced an unnumbered seven-page section with the heading, a table showing the towns and places which are inhabited by the English in New England, those that are marked with figures, as well as expressed by their names, as such as were assaulted by the Indians during the late awful revolutions of Providence. Each paragraph in the table began with a number and the name of a place, and then briefly listed the events that had occurred at that location, mostly Indian attacks on the English. Most paragraphs provided further cross-references to pages elsewhere in the volume where more in-depth accounts of the events could be found. The paragraph numbers reference places on the map that preceded the table. Many of the towns indicated on the map bore only a number. On this detail, 55 is where I work, in what is now today Portland, Maine, which is paired with a statement, 55, Falmouth, on the hither side of Casco Bay, where August 11th, about, 20, about 34 persons were killed and taken by the Indians, and then cross-reference pages 32, 33, 34. This wealth of empirical data and its distribution on this map were essential to Hubbard's overall demonstration, contra-increased Mather, that the war had not ended as Mather claimed, because Mather had re-established the Puritan civic covenant with God, but because God had miraculously interceded for the English at a few key moments, because that covenant had never been broken. If you know anything about New England Puritan history, this is a really big debate. In fact, Hubbard ends his book with a wonderfully snide comment about increased Mather's church being burned down. A sign of God? <laughs> anyway... <laughs> In this context, wrapped up within an integral to the book, the map serves as an analytical device more than it does a locational one. And in fact, Hubbard plainly wrote for readers who already knew the region's geography, or at least he thought they already knew the region's geography, except for the more northern parts. In the introduction to his secondary narrative on the northern conflict, he provided a verbal written map of the coastal settlements from, Pem from Pemaquid down to Piscataqua, because that region was, quote, less well-frequented and so more unknown to the, to the New English. In other words, Hubbard's readers in New England seemed not to have needed the map to understand the events of the war. They needed it to understand Hubbard's religious argument about the nature of the war. However, when London printers got a hold of, a, of one impression of Hubbard's book and reprinted it, they not only copied the map to create the Winehouse map, they also moved it. The Winehouse map was inserted directly after the preparatory material and opposite the front page of the main narrative. Such placement was common for imperially-minded English books about distant places. For example, when increased Mather's son, Cotton, sent his history of the Puritan settlement in New England to London to be published, the printers inserted a map by the London map sellers Modern Berry and Lee at the front of the first volume. And this map has since commonly been known as the Mather map, even though Mather himself had no hand in its creation or in its placement in the volume. 
removed from the ostensible context of the table and being read by readers in Old England who had little access to other detailed maps of New England, the Winehouse map in situ emphasized the geographical stage in which the historical action took place, downplaying its analytical function and religious significance. We can see a couple of insights from this case study. The White Hills map in the Boston book began an indexical chain leading from the map to the table to the text. Where does the map end, map text end, and the verbal text start? This map is not a self-contained thing. Its meaning is not dependent solely on the manner in which it depicts the world. It is not semiotically closed. Rather, it is a completely integrated work, it is completely integrated into the larger whole, a demonstration, clearly, of intertextuality. The Winehouse map might have lost that overt indexicality, but it too would have been read as part of the London edition. More generally, regional maps, but in a different way, regional maps are always fully integrated into arrays of other written and graphic texts. Regional maps are not read in isolation. Hubbard only made explicit what is implicit in other geographical writing. The readers are expected to move from map to narrative and back again, so the maps blur semiotically with the written word. The same principles apply to all kinds of maps. They are all semiotically open. Where do they end? The form and content of maps are not distinct, save for the limited effects of design and content, as the idea would have it, but they are intertwined. The physical placement of the maps in their parent work, parent volumes, clearly shape their potential for interpretation by their readers. Can we say that the two printed maps are actually the same? Their semantic potential is so different between the two books that I'm no longer comfortable referring to the Winehouse map as Hubbard's map. It's lost that component. And of course, their semantic potential is completely obscured when we cut either map out of its parent volumes, whether by physical or digital means, and isolate it as a strictly spatial image. The maps of New England in Hubbard's history suggest that maps' materiality varies between spatial discourses, so that analysis of that materiality, of that materiality can help modern historians situate maps within the proper discourses within which they are produced and consumed. I'd like to explore this issue through a review of the different kinds of geographical maps of New England, different forms in the colonial era and early republic. Under the ideal, cartography's history appears as little more than a progressive increase in the quality and quantity of geographical information held on maps. This progress is implicit in historical accounts, but is explicit in the many enumerative cartobibliographies that organize maps of a given region in chronological sequence. Those maps whose content appears especially accurate or advanced for their time are lauded and are inducted into the canon, especially those mother or type maps that set the pattern for a generation of subsequent maps. For example, the map shown here, John Green's map of New England, first appeared in 1755 and was reproduced at size or at reduced sizes for over 50 years. By contrast, this cuff map will never appear in a traditional map history. It's just too simple and small. Here it is at about the same scale as Green's map. It simply cannot possess the detailed content that would have made it significant to historians in the old way. More important, it is insufficiently old. As one proceeds through time, the number of maps made of an area tends to increase steadily until they can no longer all be easily accounted for. At some point in the chronology, the enumeration of maps of a region must end and attention be transferred to maps of component regions, at least while they're, they themselves are not too unmanageable in number. The result is a repeating, <coughs> repeated fracture, what we might call the spatial frame of the map of a region which historians justify by arguing that it is necessary to drop entire classes of maps from consideration when they could no longer hope to show new information. 
Traditional map history eliminates from consideration maps that do not lie on a presumed trajectory of progress, even if those maps demand attention from a sociocultural perspective. In the case of colonial New England, map histories and cartobibliographies have presented a, what some people call a funnel-shaped narrative of spatial constriction. To begin with, the maps are small. Over time, the maps are supposed to have grown physically larger to hold ever more data, with single sheets giving way to multi-sheet maps. Eventually, the regional maps just got too big and become unwieldy, and are replaced by separate maps of each subregion. First individual colonies or states, and eventually then counties, and eventually the maps of the US Geological Survey. Once a spatial frame is no longer relevant to the acquisition of information, it drops off the historical radar. Moreover, such strictly chronological accounts end up yoking maps together that otherwise have little or no connection in terms of the context within which they are produced and consumed. The card bibliographies pertaining to New England create a single narrative that begins in the small-scale regional maps of Renaissance Europe and extends through their main lists and appendices to the large-scale topographical quadrangles and fire insurance plans of the Industrial Age. But I defy anyone to explain to me how maps by Giacomo Gastaldi in the 16th century and the U.S. Geological Survey in the 19th are in any way sort of comparable or linked. Yoking all these different maps together in a single narrative of progressive growth of geographical content is historically inept. A first, step to, <clears throat> a first step to restoring aptitude is to consider the material nature of the maps. Doing so reveals three distinct sets of regions, or regional maps, none of which disappear but continue into the 19th century. The first set comprises relatively small maps, generally about the same size as, or smaller than, modern legal-sized paper. All were published within books that either promoted or celebrated the success of the English, and more especially the Puritans, in settling the region. This particular map was published at the front of Daniel Neal's two-volume history, published in London on the occasion of the centenary of the settlement of Plymouth. The second set also contains single-sheet maps, but larger and on heavier paper. This map is twice as high and twice as, twice as wide as the map in Neal's book. The multiple folds of the maps bound into books here appear as one single crease vertical in the middle. These maps were folio atlas maps, sheets, produced and consumed as part of a comprehensive statement of geographical knowledge. And they weren't of New England per se, but in New England situated within the larger extent of English colonies along the eastern seaboard of North America. The third set is of, a large, is of large wall maps of the region. These did not grow ineluctably out of the accumulation of information, but from, the from one continued circumstance. Boston-based doctor William Douglas wished to make a statement about the political and economic independence of the region. His regional map there we go, is large, as befits a working vision as a warhanger, much larger than the maps and books or the maps and atlases. Douglas's map did not sell, other reasons, and is now exceedingly rare, although for political reasons, its derivatives did, beginning with the John Green map. These large maps are generally intended for display and must be analysed accordingly, as Martin Brockner has begun to do in his wonderful The Social Life of Maps. So rather than a linear narrative of increasing quality and quantity of geographical data, for early New England, we need to distinguish three separate narratives, each continuing into the 19th century and beyond. The material nature of the maps permits us to discuss, to discern not just three genres of geographical maps, all part of the same overall mode of geographical mapping, but three precise, distinct geographical discourses about New England, each with its own processes of production, circulation, and consumption. They might all be mapped to the same region, constructed in the same way and likely, in fact, in many cases from similar sources. 
Then each featured different systems of interdictionality that bound up other kinds of work. The maps in the books were integral to debates over New England as a coherent and distinctive region. The maps and atlases were no less connotative, but situated New England within a greater ambit of geographical knowledge integral to early globalization. As war maps, the larger works possess elements of spectacle intended to overawe the reader with their arguments about the economic and political nature of the region, rather than engaging a consumer in some more reasoned debate. Do this kind of comparative material analysis enough times, and one can discern not only such precise discourses, but also much cruder distinctions between markedly different modes of mapping, between, say, regional mapping and property mapping, or the mapping of urban places. Such maps conceptualize the world in different ways in the regional maps. Some circulate within the marketplace, others within private administrative circles. And maps are displaced from one discourse into another. From this perspective, the unitary history of cartography fragments into a series of discursive traces that overlap in all sorts of fascinatingly contingent ways that desperately need to be investigated. Maps have never just gone out into the world. To circulate freely as a great disaggregated virtual library of images that people can access at will. Not even the published maps on which I focused. Their material nature provides crucial information about how maps circulated, binding certain producers and certain consumers together, and so establishes their discursive context and the potential for their interpretation. Circulation and materiality is the core of a new approach to map studies. While the, ide while the ideal of cartography has focused scholars' attention on the production of map images, and the sociocultural socio critique of maps has redirected attention to consumption, and especially to the interpretation of map meaning, the analysis of circulation and materiality is the heart of a processual approach. Yet maps are not interruptive of the processes of production and consumption. They are rather part and parcel of a dynamic mapping process of production, circulation, and consumption. Circulation is key. We can reconstruct some of the general parameters of the specific circuits through which certain sets of maps circulate through the analysis of their material qualities. And I've changed the color of the arrows to emphasize that the flow here is not of information, but of the maps themselves. Material maps may, might be physically stable and fixed, but their meanings are not. They're not out of date as soon as they are made. Map consumers construe not only what a map symbols denote, but also what an entire image connotes. People are always undertaking mappy acts, making maps, circulating them, using them. As maps continue to circulate within their discourses or cross between discourses and are found to still be meaningful, they remain valid and up to date. Even the storage and destruction of maps are dynamic, requiring decisions to be made and actions to be taken. This simple diagram, then, is emblematic of an entirely new approach to the study of mapping, an approach that decenters not just the nonsensical category of the map, but maps generally. Maps are epiphenomena of mapping processes. At the same time, they are the primary things through which we can study those processes. And in this respect, the study of the variable material nature of maps, including at times their immateriality, is a crucial component of a processual approach to mapping and map history. As the self-containedness of the individual map is debunked, as its edges metaphorically fray, so too does the generic category of the normative map. I, for one, have a very hard time treating these two works as part of the same category of phenomena. And when we throw out of the window the idea that there can be an ambiguous category of maps, with it goes any justification for the concept of the singular transcultural endeavor of cartography. There is no single endeavor of cartography that can be traced across human cultures across the centuries. There is no unambiguous category of things, category of things called maps. What there have been and what there are are innumerable spatial discourses in which people conceptualize the world in different ways for different purposes, 
those discourses entail a diverse array of mapping practices, producing maps with an array of semiotic strategies that entail material and immaterial practices, frequently together. There is, however, sufficient consistency that the analysis of maps' materiality enables us to meaningfully arrange mapping discourses as series of intersecting mapping modes, and from that, to tell the history of mapping as a human endeavour. Thank you. go up again so I can see, but I think that's Ricardo. Manuscript maps. That's just say even of just regional regional manuscript maps of New England colonial period. We'd be here till doomsday. Um, these copies are made and they're circulated, but the way that they circulate is through private channels. Um, but then there's a large number of people, both sides of the Atlantic in the early period, who like maps. They're as obsessed with maps as I am. And they collect these things and they certainly share them amongst themselves and some of them end up going to print, some don't. So by looking at how the individual maps circulate, we can start seeing how they relate to each other, to the consumers, to the producers, how they bind people into sets. Now you mentioned the planospheres. Uh, for those of you who don't know, um, early modern, well, medieval into early modern mapping basically was very distinctive. It's grounded on certain assumptions of the flat Earth. They knew the world was round, they just mapped it as if it's flat. And if you do that, it still, still works, mostly. Um, and they use them, I mean, this is a very, uh, in the Middle Ages it develops as a, as, a, as a quite functional technique, but very quickly it becomes a form of mapping and there are distinct genres of these charts that uh, quite clearly are meant for the library. They're meant for the nobility or the aristocracy, the princes and the bishops. And in fact, we've got um, invoices. Oh, you want some gold on that map? That'd be a couple more ducats. You want to have nice pretty pictures of the cities and lots of flags? That's a few more ducats. Um, so you've got really, really plain maps that we think were used at sea, or potentially were used at sea, and the vast majority of those that survive are the grand decorative ones that went straight into people's lives, you know, pools. And the planospheres are this really interesting group of world maps that were never used by mariners, although they're derived from marine information, that so we're taking a marine look to a map, a marine content, but we're repurposing it into these world maps made as if they are charts. They have all the radiating run lines and the emphasis on the coastline that marine charts have. But they're not used by mariners. They circulate into 
the circles of the rich and the intellectuals. And some of them end up appearing in print in books intended about you know, Dorothy Lillard. And these are never works that anyone would ever think at the time would be taken out on board a ship and used as actual devices. So they may look, the form may look like a marine chart that might have been used at sea if it was less decorative. But when you start looking at how these puppies circulate, you realize that these are actually circulating within geographical intellectual discourses, cosmographical discourses, uh, even though they're manuscript, at the same time as they're printed maps doing the same thing. Maybe for less well 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 off people. So it's, it's the reason you can the, the issue is one of, of finesse, of thinking about not the look of the map, but what, how the maps are circulating. It's not the look of the map, it's not the content, the design, it's the physicality, and how this thing is actually moving in space. That's what allows you to start discerning these differences. Way back. Well, just to follow up, um, there still would be some notion of discourse as one circulates in one group of discourse. Oh, yes. The kind of matters that the other kind of matters is quite distinct from discourse. So that's yes. That's part of the actual Right, so, but then it's, it's a question of. Are you, are you starting to are you moving maps around the discourse where they're being used instrumentally? Oh yes, exactly. That's, that's the, the sorry. Um, I'll give you I'll give you a different example, um, completely different. Land survey plans. Um, People make a great deal about land survey plans because they show real property boundaries. Uh, for England and certainly my part of New England, um, the property plans really aren't that important. What's important is the verbal meets and bounds description that says start from a point and go a certain way to another point and then go another way to another point. But even they are just a verbal description of the really legally binding things, which are the stakes in the ground, the marks on trees. And this is why I always say to my students, if you want a really good job for life, you know, lifetime security, become a land surveyor, because all those old boundary markers in the ground have rotted, and all the trees have been cut down <laughs> for timber and firewood. Um, so it's this huge job to go, try and go back and relocate things. But the way in which these boundaries are then maintained is not just through manuscript, mostly manuscript maps that circulate in very small numbers between lawyers and property owners, but also through a host of communal activity. So um, you may have heard the phrase, beating the bounds where members of a community, normally the selectmen or whatever local equivalent would be here, go around to make quite sure that none of their neighboring towns have stolen their land. That the property markers between the towns are in the same place. The tradition that goes back, and the Romans record it, um, isn't it in uh, one of the books of the Old Testament, Cursed be he who moves his neighbor's boundary stone? Um, there's a whole degree of performativity that goes on with surveying and property delineation, where the maps are part of this much larger process than needs to be understood, in the same way that all the maps, are, the very small little group of maps I talked about today, are all part of these bigger patterns of circulation that are as performative as they are inscriptive. Thank you. 
regards the book, and yet they're also a map. So at what point do illustrations become maps? I have no idea. Um, because within, you know, within a precise disk, within a precise interpretive environment, that difference is going to vary. And it's going to be this large part is really a question of what we understand as a map. Um, in a much earlier version, I wanted to start off by, by going through some of the, the different ways in which people called maps on maps, and they, what we think of as maps, uh, in the Renaissance. And there's three categories. There's one category which is um, words like cartography, geography, cartography, cartography, which are about the scale of the map, the cosmos, the earth in it, just the earth itself, a region, or a place. Second category are all about, hey, this is an image, and it's highlighting the fact that this is an abstraction of some sort. So you see it in typus, forma, um, representatio, delineatio, descriptio, words that we don't use today, but were very common throughout the Renaissance. In the third category uh, were words that are based on the physical material nature of the, of the document, of the work. Um, from the Greek, pinax or tabula, both meaning a plank of wood. Um, Pinax isn't used very often in the early modern Europe of tabula days. Um, and there's still some maps of people in Sistel calling the so and so table, which bugs me. Um, Mapper comes from late Latin word meaning a large cloth, like a flag or a big cloth that you can fold up and carry with you. The Latin word carta or charter comes from a Greek word for a sheet of uh, papyrus. Um, but what happens in the 18th and 19th century is that all those other kinds of terms drop away. As mapping becomes less um, apparently uh, less of an issue intellectually about how you represent things, uh, we end up with people pulling out. We have maps, we have Descartes, Descartes. Um, it's maps and it's maps and charts, maps and charts, uh, referring to the materiality and the intellectual component has disappeared because we develop the sense that the map is somehow a rigid, unintellectually um, challenging thing. So once you get that, then people start saying, "What is the difference between things and map?" But if you take away that sense that you start problematizing maps as, as images, then the boundary just dissolves. And there is no boundary. Yeah. I wonder if you can comment on how this rich conversation that we're having translates into the digital age, especially to talk about physicality and materiality and circulation and use. Um, boundaries, how that might translate to digital maps or maps that have been digitalized. Yeah. Um, I'm going to draw exclusively on Michael's work here. Um, give me one of the stump speech with your Venn diagram of disappearing circles. There's another preconception within the idea um, that I call the ontological preconception. Which, and let me just say, preconceptions frequently contradict each other. They're all historically created, they're not logical in any way or form. Um, so, all of the humor that you find in Lewis Carroll and Mark Twain talking about maps stem from conflicts and paradoxes between preconceptions. Um, so, the logical preconception is basically that maps are about allocations. Whether they're XY coordinates or latitude coordinates, or and somehow they're all the same thing, whereas in practice they're not. Um, but this drives the answer to the question. Maps are seen from this perspective as being basically giant data sets. Now, that 
quote from Michael Blakemore. Now, a map image is a structurally cartographic image that is somehow placed on, on some kind of medium for storage. You know, you brought in this idea of databases and stuff. Um, and there are people who actually argued, not very long, um, many of them, that the database is a map, because it's a thing, x, y, forms. So what happens when you image a map? Well, I had the, the little tobacco map of New England up as the same height as the Dome Green map, just for this point, in the sense that, as we all know, sorry, an image on the screen, the image becomes the size of the screen. Whether it's 10 times bigger, fraction of the size, or whatever, or the same size. So when you digitize, you start throwing out those physical um, attributes and codes that go with it. And we throw out, of course, bibliographic codes because I can sit in there at home in my jammies on a Sunday morning, raising the beautiful maps out that are there online, finding stuff. And without the bibliographic work of all the stuff that's in the red books room, you know, how do I make sense of this stuff? So the bibliographic data all goes out the window. And what's left are then the linguistic codes, which for maps are presumed to be X, Y locations. And so I was arguing with a book, you do this, and what people start doing with digitized books, they start doing keyword searches. Um, which I must admit they do. Uh, and with maps, what people do, huh, we can throw this into a GIS, Geographical Information System. And my next question is always, and then what? Oh, we can figure out the expand, we can figure out how accurate these maps were. And my main question is, why? They can be wrong. There are plenty of kinds of mapping where geometrical accuracy, spatial accuracy, is really important. I like my airplane databases to not have <laughs> mountains missing from <laughs> As has happened, unfortunately, and bad, bad results. Um, no, that kind of map, yeah. Highly accurate, great. But what does it mean to start talking about the geographic accuracy of, I don't know, Bastion was 50 or 7 half of the Unless you've got a question tied to it. For example, if you're doing some kind of comparative source analysis, by looking at this area is really good accuracy, this area is much less. Well, maybe this area can even open source. Maybe you investigate that far. Um, but the habit, this, this, this practice of assuming that the thing to do is to make the map somehow georectify it to the Earth and so we can compare it to the Earth. It works really great, I should say, for large-scale maps that deal with environment. So you're looking at urban change, you're looking at environmental change. This kind of work is excellent because you can start comparing, you can start taking measurements of volume loss and erosion and all these, these kinds of things. But for the world maps, the regional maps, it makes no sense. So the Bibliothèque Nationale de France recently digitized a whole bunch of globes. And he did it in a way that I just don't understand. They spent millions of euros on this. They had a company from Japan to go in. And they did it. First of all, they took the ball out of the globe furniture. And given the whole point of the modern globe is to be in the furniture, because the furniture had markings on it against which you position the ball of the globe. So immediately destroy the artifactual nature of the globe. So they took the globes out, the board out of the furniture, stuck it up there, imaged it every, every which way with very precise geometrical definition counts. And then turned the globes into basically a really complex mathematical formula. Nice modeling of the surface of the earth. Because the globes aren't actually, the walls aren't perfectly spherical. And once they have them in a nice, perfect mathematical model, they then move them to a ball, to a perfect sphere, from which they can then project them. 
and they weren't really naff. You sit there, there's this little plain little thing on the screen. You lose all sense of the, of the thing, of the global narrative. So this is important to me because we have a program that OSHA would name involves imaging our globes. And we image them not with some really high, fluted, expensive system, but rather something that is cheap. There's money for e-commerce. Um, it's not really an academic thing, but it makes what now tech guys like to call a sophisticated flipbook. So if you sit there on the web, on the web you can turn it around, you can move everything around, and it looks like a ball as you're moving online. But in addition to the ball by itself, we image the ball in the furniture so that you can see the whole thing as it was sold and consumed in the moment. And because there are some weirdos out there who get up on furniture, we just do the furniture by itself. It was about so. Pretty great. Please join me in thanking Professor. <laughs>